Welcome to the WBT, the Wrath-Bearing Trees podcast about literature, history, culture, and only if we have to, politics. Everyone on the WBT editorial team has some direct connection to the military. Either we're veterans ourselves or our military spouses. In each episode of the WBT podcast, we take a different subject of interest to us and investigate it. I'm Mary Doyle and your host for this week's show. I'm a veteran of the Army Reserve and have worked as an Army civilian for a couple of decades. I'm also an author and a contributing editor on the Wrath-Bearing Tree web magazine. Thanks for joining me. In this week's episode, I'm going to take you with me to the War Horse Riding Retreat at Boulder Crest, Virginia. In a previous episode, I talked to David Crissinger, who was the principal instructor at the retreat. This time we're going to talk to Thomas Brennan, the founder and driving force behind the War Horse, and why and how these workshops came together. We're also going to talk to a couple of the women who attended the retreat with me. To understand these writing retreats, we first need to talk about Shooting Ghosts. It's a book Thomas Brennan co-authored with war photographer Finbar O'Reilly. O'Reilly was embedded with Brennan and his unit in Afghanistan, in a place called Opi Kunjak. In the weeks and years that followed, the two formed a bond that is partially forged in the losses they experienced in Afghanistan and partially in what impact those experiences had on their lives once they returned home. Shooting Ghosts is told by both O'Reilly, the crusty war photographer, and by Brennan, the crusty war-tested marine. As their stories unfold, you learn they both find healing and recovery by writing words. My own personal transition from being told I have post-traumatic stress disorder to me realizing I think it's more moral, moral injury on my side and how you can turn any negative into a positive and move forward. And move forward he did with conceiving and developing The War Horse, an online magazine which they described as fact-based public service journalism that benefits more than 4 million post-9-11 veterans, their families, and fellow citizens. It's clear from reading the material on thewarhorse.org, writing didn't just help Brennan. He hopes that his writing and the words on his page will help others. I was introduced very early on in my career to some truly influential and incredible writers and videographers and photographers uh, throughout the industry. Uh, When I was in uniform and then as I got out, I just kept asking for help and asking for help and making connections with people that were you know, international reporters for this newsroom or worked as editors at the Times or worked here and worked there. Um, so the, I didn't realize it at first, but the Rolodex that I was developing was, was pretty awesome. And it's, it's one thing for me to have those connections to myself, but in order, like, if we're paying it forward to future writers, then it's going to make the conversation about vets and, and the military that much more robust and hopefully bridge the military and civilian divide through storytelling. And those stories have big impact. In doing the market research for really developing what the newsroom would be, uh, it seems like every every newsroom is doing breaking news, political commentary, um, reacting to current events, whereas we're more retroactive um, 
long form. So we're doing investigative journalism. We're doing multimedia features. Uh, yeah, we're doing investigative journalism like the Marines United one that went with Center for Investigative Reporting. He mentions Marines United here very quickly, but the story deserves a bit more than that. It was one year ago that the so-called Marines United scandal broke. Hundreds of current and former Marines were posting explicit photos of women, including female Marines on a private Facebook group. A whitening scandal involving the U.S. military. The Defense Department is investigating online outlets through which Marines shared nude photographs of women, including fellow Marines, and some of them taken... In March 2017, the war horse broke the Marines United story. They partnered with Reveal and the Center for Investigative Reporting to expose a horrific cyber-stalking and cyber-bullying Facebook group. The hashtag MeToo movement started around 2007, but didn't go viral until around September 2017. There is no doubt the Marines United story played some role in encouraging perhaps thousands of service members, men and women, to share their stories of sexual trauma. Basically, Brennan's fledgling journalism organization broke a hell of a story not just because of its newsworthiness, but because of its social impact. The Marines United story was followed by Hollywood taking up the cause, and the hashtag MeToo became a social phenomena that is still with us today. The combination of stories and events has spawned countless editorials, books, and a major movement that has done more for putting a spotlight on sexual assault and harassment than ever before. Thomas Brennan. Uh, we did a multimedia multimedia feature uh, on a Medal of Honor recipient who survived jumping on a grenade uh, in Afghanistan. We did that with Vanity Fair. So our mentality is we're not for veterans, by veterans. We're not for veterans, by civilians. We're just a newsroom that focuses on military and veteran affairs. And our bread and butter is that we're going to try and partner as much as we can with pre-existing audiences all over the country and the world. The workshops assist that partnership, since the hope is writers who attend will eventually populate the site. The Warhorse held their first workshop at Columbia University. For the second, they moved to the sprawling 35-acre Boulder Crest Retreat in Virginia, a privately built haven aimed at helping and healing veterans and their families. relationship with Boulder Crest Retreat came about as I stayed here as a combat wounded Marine myself. So that's how I became aware of what they were doing here. And then every time I just kept interacting with the organization, I just loved it more and more. And given that the New York one was our first one, we didn't have, um, like, we didn't cover travel. We didn't cover lodging. We, you know, food was only two meals a day instead of three. Um, so there were a lot of things that we knew we wanted to improve on for the next time. Um, and that's kind of what we worked on doing like here. It's kind of hard to compare the two because they are so drastically different. I mean, being in New York City and being in middle of nowhere, Virginia, like it's kind of it, two opposite ends of the spectrum. I'd say it was much different. The Boulder Crest location was absolutely beautiful. Elizabeth O'Haran is the director of programs and scholarships for the Pat Tillman Foundation. She's also a veteran of the Air National Guard. When she attended the retreat, She'd already been published by the Warhorse, but like all of us, she was inspired by the setting. 
I live in Chicago, um, which is a big city and a noisy city, and I wake up early, but I never see the sunrise. Like, I never actually see the sunrise. Um, so to be in a place where you could wake up and watch the sunrise made me want to spring out of bed in the morning. And, you know, being able to be by a cozy, warm fireplace and drink my coffee and sort of stimulate the, all those creative senses and being, like, grateful for a new day it was just such an inspiring setting. Um, to me, I felt like, wow, if I could wake up in a place like this every morning, I would write a whole heck of a lot more. Elizabeth was one of my roommates. We shared one of four cabins that were cabins only by name. It wasn't only the setting. Somehow, at this particular retreat, there was a special combination of the setting and the people that made it most memorable. They got a group of like a dozen awesome women in the room, and that was really cool. Teresa Fazio, a retired Marine officer who has been published in a long list of places like the New York Times, remarked about how the setting and the people helped. It was really just great getting to meet other people at different stages of writing, and having it be entirely women veterans um, was interesting because I've never been in a group like that before or in a room like that before, and everybody... um, was just really cool and and really accomplished and had a lot of common threads from their very disparate experiences uh, that kind of all melded together really well. So um, really the the camaraderie and the chance to, you know, rest and bounce ideas off each other um, was incredibly valuable for me. The piece she wrote while at Boulder Crest was recently published on The War Horse. It's about a trip I did to Nepal last October and hiking near... um, near where actually a Marine Corps helicopter had crashed in the wake of the 2015 earthquake. And so we encountered a little bit of earthquake damage during our hike also. Um, So yeah, it kind of juxtaposes those two events. I've been in a lot of group environments and um, I can't remember laughing that hard around a group, you know, a group of a dozen women in as long as I can remember. Um, and I don't know, and I kind of spent a lot of time thinking about that, and I just kind of ended up wondering to myself, maybe women veterans who are interested in writing, they're just my tribe. I don't know if that was the magic sauce, it's kind of this interesting nexus of women who have had these really interesting experiences in the military and have all that comes with that, but then are also interested in the creative art of writing, you know, whether it be expressing their own personal experiences or fiction work, like what you work on. Um, I really, you know, I felt like, wow, maybe these are just my people. In the military, you know, it's always at least a co-ed environment. And so often you have women who like aren't really used to being around lots of other women. Um, But everybody was like really cool. We've always maintained that we want to be the gold standard. um, And we're not going to do anything half-assed. So really us when we set out to do the writing seminar, there, there were a lot of great writing seminars. I mean, you and I both did Ron Caps. Like, he's awesome. Like, I can never talk down on anything he does. Um, and he's done an incredible amount of stuff for the veteran community. Um, it, there's a certain, I mean, there is therapy in all writing. Um, but I see writing workshops like that more as finding your voice and therapy, whereas we are... Our first goal is, is publication, um, with therapy being a very second, uh, like a very close second, since we are a newsroom. Mm-hmm. So, for us, it was just how can we 
maintain gold standard with everything that we do, whether it's an investigation, a writing seminar, or a multimedia profile, like looking at a veteran doing really good things. A major part of that gold standard Brennan strives for is in the quality of the instruction, and their instructor is David Christinger. How did the partnership with David come about? I mean, he's not a veteran. He obviously has a um, an affinity to veterans and what veterans have done or ha are going through. So how did he become like this? He's sort of like the the glue that holds the whole writing thing together. I met David in person for the first... Anna and I both met David for the first time in person the, the day before our first writing seminar at Columbia. No way. We never met him in person before. We only talked on the phone. Veterans are kind of scary sometimes, and we're intimidating if, if you have no connection to the military whatsoever. And for somebody like David to, to really develop a class at a university, um, to, to really become a pillar in the writing community for vets, um, like that, that takes an incredible amount of strength, and I just wanted to give him a shot. Mm -hmm. I did an earlier podcast about David Christinger and his methods for coaching veteran writers. But we can't talk about the War Horse Retreat without including the glue that holds it all together. One of the questions I asked you before we sat down to talk was if you kind of changed or massaged your um, curriculum for the people that you're teaching. And it's interesting that you are um, talking to rooms full of veterans and you're not a veteran yourself. Um, what Talk about why it is that you are sort of focused on the veteran community and um, and do you feel part of that community now? It's a, it's a good question. I think that, um, like I could do the same thing with other groups, right? I could work with people who have, you know, survived an illness or I could work with people who you know, have lost some, you know, family member or something. And I and I, I don't have direct experiences with those groups of people. Um, I've always worked with veterans, but the thing that keeps me in the veteran space is that the veterans who show up and the family members who show up are really motivated and they, can I swear on this thing? Sure. They, I like to say, they own their fucked up. They, they know it. They, they, um, they want to do something positive with it, and when I have like that much, you know, positive, motivated energy, then I'm more like coaching than teaching, and that's it's just a way simpler, um, way simpler thing. If I have to like drag it out of people, then I feel like it's they're not ready. It's not the right thing to do. I mean, I'm not trying to get people to spill their guts. I'm trying to get people to, you know, like I said, like rip your shirt open and say like, okay, here's my scar. Now I want to see yours, right? Um, and and I found so many like human basic universal experiences that veterans were talking about that other people can relate to if if we have these conversations. And so I kind of saw myself as maybe a translator, or uh, someone called me a veteran whisperer one time, and I thought that was kind of funny. Um, my my students uh, the second semester made made me a plaque for my desk that said. Um, David Kreisinger, the uh, lieutenant colonel of the 1st Civilian Division, and I really liked that. Um, so do I feel a part of it? I mean, there are certain p 
parts that I feel very a part of. So, you know, like the military veteran writer community, I've, I feel like has welcomed me in with open arms and appreciates the work that I do and, and have been super helpful to me, whether it's, you know, um, like Brian Kastner giving me advice on writing memoir or Matt Hefty wanting to work on projects with me or Andrea Williams introducing me to her agent or, you know, all these people who are, who just give so freely of their time and their energy and their wisdom. And then there are certain things that I just feel like I, I never will. And not because there's, there's not a, like, it's not like there's a, a do not enter sign. It's like, it's something that I don't want. I don't feel like I should, or that I can even be a part of. Um, and, and that's okay. As someone who attended the War Horse Retreat, it was far more than just okay. It was five days of real connection, inspiration, creativity, and productivity. It took me a long time to come down from the high of this retreat, and I wasn't alone. Elizabeth O'Haran. I think there's a lot of uh, veteran organizations out there that kind of, you know, necessarily, they talk the talk, but they don't necessarily walk the walk or... They require a huge amount of resources to do not a lot of programming or, you know, I've, I've worked in the veteran space for quite a while now, um, you know, over a dozen years. And so I've kind of seen healthy nonprofits and unhealthy nonprofits and um, organizations that do important work and don't. <laughs> and I just really think that the War Horse, you know, not just Marines United and the work they did exposing that scandal, but... Um, what they're doing to kind of tell stories and to tell the truth about things that are happening related to veterans and military. I think it's really, really, really important work and they're doing a lot with a little. Um, and I just think they're putting out some of the best content and um, are just salt of the earth people working really hard. And that's, I think, really refreshing to see in this space. Several of the women who attended the War Horse with me have had their essays published amongst the quality writing on thewarhorse.org. Here is Elizabeth O'Haran reading her essay, Even Butterflies Go to War. Trust me, you'll want to stick with it to the end. A desert butterfly perched on my leg as I rode through dusty terrain on the back end of a truck, bumping out into the desert to perform maintenance work on bombs waiting to be loaded onto their jets. It looked like one of those butterflies that perched on cauliflower in my mom's garden when I was a kid. I had never paid them much attention. They were common, ordinary. But here in the Iraq desert, it was so beautiful. Peaceful and magical with its white flitting wings. I observed it like I used to watch the sparrows in basic training, envious of their freedom to come and go as they pleased, unthreatened by their surroundings. Go far away from here, I urged the butterfly silently. While I was deployed to Iraq, I wrote updates for friends and family, but also for myself. After writing about the butterfly's visit, I received a note from my grandfather. I saw those butterflies too, he said. They were so beautiful. Not the same ones, different, but the same. It had taken him a long time to write about his butterflies. Before dawn on December 7, 1984, he awoke in a sweat despite the frigid Wisconsin winter. This wasn't unusual for him, even so many years after he'd returned from the Pacific, but on this Pearl Harbor anniversary, he'd finally had enough. He roused himself, made black coffee, pulled off the typewriter's cover, and began pecking. When he finished, he made four copies, one for each of his children, licked the stamps and envelopes, and dropped them in the mail. 
The letter was largely one single sentence, 717 words long, in fact, I counted. Tumbling thoughts twisted and turned, the stream of consciousness run on sentence, full of haunting memories concluded with a final paragraph. War is one stinking, terrifying hell. There are no heroes in war. There are only the survivors, the dying, and the dead. He wrote that he wouldn't speak of it again, but that at least now we knew his story. Implied, don't ask me any questions. I was less than a year old when my parents received the letter. My uncle Bill managed to persuade my grandfather to keep writing, gently offering that World War II veterans were a vanishing breed and that family records would be incomplete without it. My grandfather finally conceded and began typing again. Rather than simply purging like he had that night in December, he researched history of the atolls he landed on, detailed descriptions of dehydration and jungle rot, copied and pasted crude pictures of elephantiasis, elephantiasis of arms, legs, and even testicles. He wrote about Shamoro culture that he witnessed on Guam, where he fought to liberate the island from the Japanese. He resurrected buried memories of friends named Tommy and Jimmy, who were mowed down by machine gun fire. Some stories would never make it to paper, he admitted, weren't meant to be told. Another 15 years passed before my grandfather finished. After I read his completed memoir, I wrote him an email. I didn't ask him any questions. I was a young teenager and his story moved me to tears, and I wanted him to know it had profoundly impacted his granddaughter. I couldn't begin to imagine what he had been through, I told him, but I was eternally grateful that he chose to trust us. It touched him enough that he printed off my email and included it in the sparse copies of his memoir that he ran off at a print shop and gave away to family and a few old war buddies who were still alive. I didn't understand why he included my email, but I found comfort knowing that it had resonated with him. I've returned to his memoir over the years, studying the pages back and forth, memorizing sentences and even a few paragraphs. Although the memoir indicated a willingness to share his story, I never brought it up after that email. I feared prying and making him dig into abscesses that he didn't want to revisit. It never felt right. Holiday gatherings were loud and full of dark beer. Early bird Friday suppers were lighthearted, and Packer and Badger games demanded our full attention. My enlistment date into the National Guard fell on September 13, 2001, two days after the planes hit. I hadn't intended to join the military in the wake of an attack on American soil like my grandfather had after Pearl Harbor, but my path began to resemble his. Only I wasn't called up right away, so I continued on with college, serving one week in a month. But when I would visit my grandparents for lunch between classes, constantly wondering if and when I would be deployed, we mostly skipped over the wars. Instead, we talked about the books we were reading, avoiding the elephant in the room that dredged up painful memories for him and stirred deep anxieties in me. If we neared the topic, he shook his head and waved off, and we went back to our lunches. I could tell how much he hated that I would be involved in the war. When I eventually deployed, I found it difficult to speak about my experiences, but it was easier to write. And I was inspired by my grandfather's willingness, although initially resistant, to do the same. Whenever I posted an update or sent an email or letter home, I'd get little notes in return from my grandfather. Sometimes a quick email, sometimes a short letter. Keep your head down. Stay safe. We're thinking of you. We want you home. That was about the extent of it. No questions, even after I returned home from each of my three deployments. Perhaps he didn't want to ruin our tuna salad sandwiches. 
Despite writing while I was deployed, in the months after returning home, I clammed up, unable to make much sense of my experiences. My father encouraged me to keep writing, just as my uncle had encouraged my grandfather decades earlier. Dad told me that after my grandfather wrote the pre-dawn letter, he stopped having night terrors. He had kept things bottled inside for four decades, not wanting to uncork them. He hadn't known putting words to paper would be so therapeutic. For me, I found that my thoughts slowly began to feel less like a lottery ball machine, and when they started to settle, they wiggled back out onto paper. My grandfather passed not long after I returned from my last deployment, nearly a decade ago now. I would trade just about anything to sit down with him to talk, maybe not even about our wars, just about writing them. I wonder if he felt lighter after he wrote things down. I wonder if he pulled the pages out when he finished typing for the day and felt resolution. I wonder if he felt like vomiting while writing, like I sometimes do. Every once in a while, I find memorized phrases from his memoir drifting through my mind when I read the news. War is one stinking, terrifying hell. But I also remember that I saw the butterflies, and it brings me some peace that I know he saw them too. I have to thank Liz for her willingness to read that for us today. But that's all the time we have. Remember to check out the website at www.wrathbearingtree.com. That's one word, wrathbearingtree.com. Subscribe to the website or become one of our supportive patrons. If you're a writer, we invite you to submit works of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, reviews, and commentary to our website for inclusion in a future edition. That's WBT for this time. I'm Mary Doyle. Thanks for listening.